Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Cheeky Natives. I mean, it's been lockdown, so uh, we haven't been able to have really live conversations, but we're so grateful that we can have virtual conversations. And I suppose one good thing about the pandemic is that because we're all stuck indoors, we are having this wonderful privilege to talk to people all over the world. Uh, And today we're going to have a wonderful conversation, which I'll hand over to Alma to just introduce, uh, and then we'll get into the the conversation. Okay. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to be in conversation with today's author. I could do a very long introduction because our author is absolutely amazing, but I will not. I will say that we are very privileged to be in the company of Bird Spinet, and we're going to be discussing her latest novel, which, as you will discover, has been the subject of A Bidding War, is now auctioned to be a TV special, and is now long-listed for the National Book Prize. So we are an amazing company. We are quite privileged to be in company today. And I know that many of you have read her first book and absolutely loved it, which was The Mothers. So I am excited to welcome um, Brits onto the Cheeky Natives. Welcome, Brits. Hi, thanks for having me. Firstly, congratulations on the long list of the National Book Award. I suppose the first question is, how do you feel to be long-listed? I mean, I think it's an incredible honor. Um, You know, I think they said that there were over 300 books or something like that submitted for that prize. Um, So to make it into the top 10 is just unbelievable. So it was a great honor. um, And I was also just honored to be on the uh, list with such great company, so many great authors and so many great books that came out this year. And I mean, I, I'm just like, I'm ready for more of these long lists and short lists and even awards, because I think The Vanishing Half is exactly that, just this book that's going to be timeless. Like, you know, we think about earlier authors who've written about similar themes where I, I think, and I've said this before, but I think really The, the Vanishing Half is not only a novel. I think it's, a, it's an academic offering, right? And I think that it allows us to do a lot of things. And I'm so excited that I think that more people will teach it in their courses because I think that it allows us to do so much more than just read a novel. It allows us to think through very difficult questions that you bring up in the novel. I suppose to start the conversation here and think about the title plays a number of roles in the book, um, but wanted to speak about The Vanishing Half. Apart from the more obvious vanishing half, right, as people read the book and understand what that means, what are some of the, the, the sort of metaphors that the title plays in the book? Yeah, I mean, I think we like the t- title because it works on a few different levels in the book. Um, the obvious one is Stella, um, Stella disappearing, which is introduced very early on in the book, uh, and sort of Stella's lineage even being the kind of vanishing half of this family that is going to be gone. Uh, so there's that element of it, but I think there are lots of characters in the book that go through these moments of, of transition or transformation, uh, who leave part, parts of themselves behind or become something new. Uh, so I think, you know, uh, you have characters, uh, like Reese who reinvents himself, uh, Barry, who is a drag queen and, uh, also has these moments of reinvention, whether he's on the stage or off the stage, Kennedy becomes an actor and experiences that same sort of duality of performing versus not performing. And even uh, when um, Adele begins to lose her memory, there's that part of her life that disappears from her. So I think that we like that the title spoke to the thematics of the book in a few different ways. I mean, speaking of, of thematics, in many ways, this book is is timely. It is a timeless book, but of course, it's also quite timely. And uh, in, in, a, in a time when we're having renewed conversations around identities, but also around what it means to be Black in the U.S. and what it means to constantly have your life or to live on, on, in a sense of precarity, right? In a time of precarity. What, what did it mean for you for the book to come out at the time that it, that it did, right? And this is in a global pandemic. Uh, Black Lives Matter was happening as well. And what did, you, what did it mean for you to have a book around identity come out in this particular time? You know, I, I, I'm just curious about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it was very strange. Um, You know, I think you spend however many years working on a book, and you have no idea what type of world you're going to be publishing the book into. 
And for me, I knew that I was writing a book set, you know, I don't know, 50 years in the past or however long that is. Um, so I did not expect it to be talked about as, as relevant in any type of way or that it was going to speak to the current moment in any way. Um, so, you know, I think it was very strange. Um, and I think that the, the conversation surrounding the book ended up being very different than what I expected. Uh, but I also think that's what happens when you, when you write a book or you create any type of art that, you know, once you sort of release it into the world, whatever is happening in the world is going to speak to that. It's going to reinterpret it and reimagine it in ways that are different than what you first conceived of when you were working on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I suppose also, um, for me, I, I think I love that the book has been received in the way that it has been received. I've seen a lot of people just being like, you, we thought the mothers was good, but like the vanishing half is really, it's really it. So like you've become this writer who's just been giving us like amazing writings. <laughs> I want to speak um, more particularly about Mallard as a character in the book and wanted to know, like it, it is a location but it also seems to play quite a, a central character in the book and wanted to know why it played this dual place, like as this location where you locate the story, but also moves as a character throughout the, the, the lifespan of the book. Yeah, I mean, I've always been interested, I guess, in ideas about hometowns. Um, my first book was set in my hometown. Um, this book... Uh, is is set in this fictionalized town uh but i was interested in the ways in which you can leave home but home never quite leaves you i think that that's a that's a sort of reoccurring theme i think in both of my books um so in the case of mallard i i knew that i wanted that to be the setting of the book and where i wanted to begin and i knew that a lot of what i wanted to grapple with was the complexity of, of growing up in this place and leaving this place and returning to this place and what does that mean but I also was interested in the idea of home being sort of mobile, the idea that home can follow you even once you leave home. Uh, and I think in that way, it's, it's sort of uh, the idea that Mallard is not just a place. It's an idea. It's an ideology. It's a way of thinking. And ways of thinking are very mobile. So I wanted to think about how these characters are all grappling with this place that has uh, shaped them all in very different ways but continues to haunt all of them, even as they leave and go out to the world. Mm. I, I think that it's so interesting that you've spoken about how you can leave home, but home continues to follow you. And I think that it comes true for me when I think of Jude, you know, and I think of these white supremacist ideals of, of beauty and the standards to which dark-skinned women are held. And I think of the juxtaposition of how people in Mallard are able to pass, but they can't transcend their blackness. And so even their ability to pass doesn't offer them a protection. And so I wanted us to speak a little bit about why you used certain characters in the book as an exploration of these ideals of beauty and how even those ideals can't necessarily protect you, but how not being able to meet those ideals also follows you. Yeah. I mean, I think that that was part of what felt interesting to me about the idea of this town in the, in the, in the, from the first place was the idea that there are people who are living in this town who are invested in lightness for its own sake, really. It's not for, in hopes of gaining any sort of material gain. It's not about making money. It's not about gaining power or privilege. Um, it's about lightness for its own sake. And there was something always so strange about that to me. Uh, but also so interesting of what does it, what would it be like to be in this town where you're invested in being white, but not, but you're not willing to pass as a white person in the way that Stella does. Like Stella doing that is kind of an aberration from what the way the rest of the community is oriented. So what does that mean just to pursue lightness for its own sake? And in a way that, as you said, is not protect you from any of the ways in which black people suffer everywhere as far as not being able to access education and jobs and uh, being vulnerable to violence, all these things that the people in Mallard still experience and suffer. But the only thing that they feel like they have gained or been, you know, the, the, the prize that they have won is lightness and that's it. So, so I, for me, I wanted to think about that because I think it gave me a way to think about the absurdity of, of race and the absurdity of colorism, uh, 
by by kind of pushing it to its ex- most extreme ideology, which is mm-hmm. colorism that is in pursuit of lightness for no other reason than lightness. And that to me was the most extreme way of thinking about it and kind of pushing it to its its farthest edge. Um, mm-hmm. So I wanted to think about that and and thinking about Jude's experience being the sort of opposite of that of somebody who is uh, who is you know bullied and tormented for being dark for no reason other than the fact that she is dark. It's not that, you know, her darkness is associated with her, you know, having less money or having, you know, any type of material way that her darkness has changed her life. She's in the exact same position as all of these people who are (laughs) making her life hell, but she's dark and that gives them license to uh, condemn her, I think, because I think because in a way she is she is sort of what they fear. She is what, you know, what these people are fearing as they're going outside and putting hats and layers on to avoid being too dark. So I wanted to think about that and, and, and the idea of lightness being sort of this prize that people are seeking for no reason other than its lightness. Um, to me, there was always something absurd about that. And also that felt, that felt like a way to get at colorism uh, mm-hmm. just at its root. Mm. And I really like how the way you got at colorism was not to focus on Jude experience necessarily, but to focus on this proximity to lightness, right? So the closer you are, the, the lighter you are, the closer you are to whiteness. But we see that everyone who sort of interacts with Mallet knows that Mallet is a Negro town, right? Knows that black people live in Mallet. And so this lightness doesn't do anything for the people who want to attain it. But their own anxieties are then pushed to Jude because Jude's earlier part of her life is really like just marred with like torment because she's constantly reminded of, 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 of her darkness. And this also like sort of changes the way that Jude herself looks at herself, you know, um, there's a moment in the book where you speak about Jude getting her first kiss and Jude reflects back on that to be like, is it because he was drunk or is it because he really wanted to kiss me? And then I think it also in many ways influences that Jude participates in relationships early, later on in her life. Um, and I wanted to know, like, was that also something that you were trying to develop in Jude's character? The, the, that trauma, like, fundamentally can change the way that we interact with the world, particularly in a romantic sense. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think like her earliest sort of romantic relationship that you're describing is very traumatic. Um, and uh, I wanted to think about the way in which that would shape her as she goes out into the world and leaves this town behind and attempts to enter another romantic relationship as an adult and this sort of finds herself uh, kind of flailing of how to navigate it. And, and so much of that, I think, is because of what she has experienced um, as a young person who did not find early romance, you know, in the way that Desiree and early have this like very sweet romance, at least at first, um, she doesn't have that experience of, of being wooed by somebody or even feeling like she can trust somebody or, or, or having any sense of safety and romance. So when she finds herself in this potential romance, she's wired to not trust it. You know, why would she trust it? So um, I, I thought about that too. I wanted to see glimpses of her growing up. I didn't want to spend too much time there, to be honest, just because it's, I mean, it was hard for me to think about and write, uh, to be honest. And beyond that, I knew that, uh, it was a little obvious. I just felt that, you know, the moment that you see Jude on the page, you know, that she's going to have a hard time growing up there. Like that's expected. So I didn't want to write hundred pages of her being bullied and tormented, um, but I did want to think about these pivotal moments that would come to really shape her and how she thinks about herself when she becomes a woman out in the world, and particularly that relationship, uh, I mean, relationship, I put in quotes, um, that she has with the boy in her town, um, the way he, that he mistreats her. That's something that she definitely carries with her, even once she meets a man who's actually really good to her. Mm-hmm. And and speaking of the ability to return to love after trauma, I think of the relationship between Desiree and Ernie. And I, I think of Desiree's first marriage, well, her first relationship 
first relationship, I suppose, with with Jude's father, who in many ways mistreats her, is abusive, but also makes it difficult for her to hold space for intimacy and vulnerability. And I juxtapose that with the relationship with Early. So in some ways, I feel like Desiree struggles to commit in, in ways that I guess maybe early might find meaningful or what we would think of conventionally as meaningful. And I, I want us to spend a little bit of time talking about how that relationship is unconventional in many ways and how much of that is also shaped by Desiree's previous trauma, but also, I guess, Israel's understanding of what relationships look like when you've been vulnerable and somebody has mistreated you in the ways that Jude's father has. Yeah, I mean, I think I had, a, there were a lot of, uh, I think the relationships to me that were most meaningful in the book were perhaps the most unconventional in the sense of people not being legally married. I just felt, uh, I felt, and I don't know if part of that is just me, uh, yeah, just me wanting to have, make space for that. Of That is not the only way to have a fulfilling relationship, you know? So I think part of that is just me, um, but but I think for, for Desiree and Early, I, I went through different iterations of thinking about what their relationship would be like. But um, I think a big thing was thinking about, yeah, this is a person who has been in this really violent marriage. Um, and now she has the potential for this relationship with somebody. And she doesn't know whether she can trust Early at first because he's kind of approaching her under some dubious circumstances. And beyond that, he has this very uh, unconventional way of living where he's someone who's kind of coming and going a lot. And at first I thought that that would be a source of conflict between them. But then I thought it was actually more interesting if like that's a safe space for her. You know, the idea of somebody who is not going to be around a lot, but you trust them to come back and they trust you. And, you know, this idea of what does it mean to have a relationship that's not about possessing somebody. And I think particularly thinking about that in like a, you know, a heterosexual lens is fraught because uh, the history of heterosexuality is about possess- possession, particularly when you're a woman. So to think of this relationship that's not about possessing and to let that be in a way that's not a source of conflict between them, uh, to think about people who learn how to trust each other, to kind of come and go and to be free and when I'm back, we're together. And when I'm gone, you know, I'm doing whatever I'm doing when I'm gone. Um, There was something about that that I found really liberating to think about. And I think felt like what Desiree needed because she was in this relationship that was violent, yes, but also controlling. Like there is, you know, within any domestic violence situation, there's always that element of that person controlling you um, and, and doing that type of psychological damage to you, even if they're not physically beating you. Um, so for her to be able to escape that and enter into this relationship that felt trusting and safe and also not possessive and controlling, I think that that was important for her as a character. And I also just enjoyed writing it, enjoyed writing this different type of, you know, long term relationship. That's not about living in the same house together all the time or having a ring or, or any of these other trappings that we're told of of what it means to be in love with somebody i mean i also think i really appreciated the love relationships i call them the softer moments of the book one of my favorite relationships in the book is jude and reese because i just think there is a, a tenderness with which you wrote the characters um but i also think that as much as we were watching them we were also part of that moment we were also in the intimate moment But I wanted to speak about the idea of inviting in versus coming out, right? So there is a way in which you don't do what people try to do, right? Like, so there is no outing of Reese at any moment in the book. And Reese is the author of his own narrative. So Reese is the only person who decides when to invite people in and when not to invite people in. And I wanted to know why it was important for you to write about his transness in that way, right? Sort of in many ways not write Reese from the outside view, but write from the inside that Reese is the author of his own story and what he wants to share with us, he will share with us. So we'll only know Reese to the extent that he lets us know him. We're taking a short break. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, 
and of course their newest novels. Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was really important for me that Reese had autonomy. Um, I think that, uh, you know, that is one of the sort of most insidious uh, effects of transphobia is just taking away bodily autonomy from somebody. Um, and whether that is asking somebody invasive questions about their body, um, whether that is the trope of exposing, um, I think people call it the naked reveal, but that way of exposing that a character is trans by them being un like unveiled or disrobed in some way. Um, these are all really awful tropes that, that people use and, and they're awful for many different reasons, but I think one of them is that it rids that person of any type of autonomy, which is what it means to be human. It means to be a person that you have that, you have that, uh, that sort of self-possession and that you have uh, the ability to tell your own story. So for me, that was just important from the beginning that I knew of um, a lot of these really awful tropes that I wanted to avoid uh, because they're terrible. Um, and that it was important to think of Reese as somebody who is self-possessed, as somebody who, uh, you know, tells, uh, I knew from the beginning, I did not want, uh, uh, I did not want Reese uh, to, I didn't want this to be like a plot point or a twist that Reese was trans. It's something that he tells Jude like pretty immediately. Um, I think originally it was like maybe the second section after you met him, that got reshuffled because I had flashbacks to Jude's childhood in there, but immediately it was like, you meet Reese at the party and then the second section is he's telling her the story. Um, so a lot of that for me was just, yeah, I didn't want this to be treated like a plot twist or that this was something salacious or even that interesting. It's just like, he's telling her about his life and his journey and it's not a source of conflict between them. It's not a source of tension. And really what I wanted the tension in that section to be was the romantic tension of, does this person like me? Oh, I don't know if he likes me. Oh, does she like me? Like, I just wanted it to be that, which is uh, what, I, what I like to see in a love story. I think that's the most fun part of a love story. And also I think the most fun part of a crush when you're like in that place of not knowing, uh, that I think is the sort of, you know, fun part of what it means to be 19 or 20 or however old Jude is at that time and having a crush on somebody and you don't know if he likes you back. So, so a lot of that was, was just wanting to write towards that space of what felt most emotionally uh, rich to me and also um, what felt interesting. And also, again, just trying to, I knew that a lot of writing this book was going to be in pretty much every way imaginable writing outside of my direct experience. You know, I'm not light enough to live in Mallard. I'm not as dark as Jude. I'm not, you know, a bounty hunter like early. I'm not a drag queen. I was writing outside of my experience in a lot of different ways. Um, and I wanted to honor the experiences that I was writing about that were different than my own um, and, and, and try to write them in a way that felt, that felt honest and real. Mm. I, I think that, you know, we've sort of touched on it, but I, I wanted to talk about passing, which is a long literary tradition that's been written about, but there almost always feels like there's a gotcha moment, right? So there is a moment in which the character who's passing gets exposed and there is a, there is a reveal, right? But you write about passing as an, as an empathetic exploration of identity and of the difficult choices that people have to make in anti-Black societies and I wanted us to talk a little bit about that about what it means to write about passing in a contemporary way but also writing about passing with empathy and with understanding of the kind of choices that people have to make in the circumstances in which they find themselves yeah um, I mean I think that that was my I mean I think that that's always my guiding principle to be honest is thinking about empathizing with characters. I don't want to write about someone that I can't empathize with because yeah. to me that's just not even interesting or worth doing. Um, and I think for me the biggest thing was was writing about passing in a way that wasn't judgmental 
because uh, I think it can be very easy to judge people, <laughs> um, particularly from our position as 21st century people, uh, to think, well, I would never do that. I would never, you know, leave behind my family. I would never want to be white. Um, I think it can be very easy to situate yourself there. Um, and we never know what we would do in different situations, first of all. And second, uh, that's just not interesting to, to write from that point of view. So I knew that I didn't want to write a story that was moralizing in the way that a lot of past mm. narratives are. Um, I didn't want to punish Stella. I didn't want to make the whole story this kind of referendum on whether Stella is bad or good. Um, all of that is just aesthetically and politically uninteresting to me. So I mostly was interested in, in that kind of question of, well, then what next? And then what next? Once Stella decides to make this choice, once she's committed to this role, what happens after that? You know, what happens once this person's passed? What does the next stage of her life look like? What happens as she gets kind of deeper and deeper into this world? What happens as she commits more fully to this, to this new person that yeah. she decides to be? To me, that was always the interesting question. It wasn't, what is she going to get caught? Or what's going to happen when she gets exposed? Is her husband going to leave her? I didn't, I wasn't even really interested in that. I never really imagined that scenario, to be honest. I didn't, I didn't write a single version of this book where Stella got exposed. I just was, I did, never was that interested. I was really thinking about what happens next. What does this person's life look like 30 years from now, 40 years from now? Uh, that was the question that I think felt most uh, just complicated to me. And I really like that. I think at the end of the book, I was basically saying like, I'm so grateful that Stella was not exposed because I feel yes. that, uh, the, that we are always the people who get exposed, right? But like people who take blackness to go never get exposed until the <laughs> one time we, we show up and you're like, Oh, you, you just picked it up. Like you just literally picked it up. So I was so grateful that, you know, Stella was living her best life although not her best life, you know. <laughs> I wanted to spend a few moments thinking about Stella. Stella was someone who, my heart broke for her because I think even as Stella entered into this new world that she, she chose, you know, as a gateway to a better humanity, Stella constantly thought about what her life would have been like had she stayed, right? And we see this in the relationship that she has with her daughter, but also with her husband and the woman in her neighborhood. Stella is just not settled, right? Um, and I suppose a part of it is the anxiety that people want us to think about, will I get caught? But I, I think it, what you were trying to do was more deeper than that. It was just like, this is not my life. I am not this woman. And so I need to pretend to be this woman. But in pretending to be this woman, there are parts of me that I'm losing. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Was it difficult to write Stella because of, 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 of the internal conflicts that Stella presented for herself? Yeah, I think it was. I think she was the most difficult character for me to write. Um, I think in a lot of different ways. I think one was uh, uh, her personality, I think, is guarded and very interior and very sort of hidden. Um, and I think also her psychology is really complicated because she is somebody who wanted, she made this choice for herself. It's not a situation that she was forced into, you know? So what does it mean to make a choice for yourself that you don't quite regret? Like, I think if she would, could do it all over again, she would do the exact same thing. But at the same time, you do still wonder about your old life or you wonder about what you've left behind. You mourn what you've left behind, the complexity of sitting in that. And I think beyond that, I knew that she was a character that, I didn't know, but I suspected that she was a character that there were some readers that would be primed to dislike her or to even hate her because of the choices <laughs> that she makes. Um, so I wanted to be aware of that as I was, as I was developing her, of being aware of, you know, not, not necessarily trying to preempt that, that reading of her because I think it's fine if you hate any of these characters. Um, it doesn't bother me at all. Um, but that being said, I wanted you to at least uh, understand where she's coming from, even if you don't like or love her or accept what she's chosen. Um, I just knew that she was a character that people would be resistant to in some way. So I just wanted you to understand her thought process and understand how she ended up where she ended up, um, even if you don't uh, agree with it or think that what she did was right. We're taking a short break. Have you ever wondered what the band ACDC has to do with the missing town of Dublin, Wisconsin? Or who gets to decide what music plays at the end of the world? Or whether or not the largest unsolved art heist in history was 
actually a cover for a different crime. Maybe you haven't wondered about these things, but that's okay. On 31, we dive into strange, true, but often lesser-known stories and the interesting theories that surround them. From space to sports, lost media to internet lore, 31 has something for everyone. Find 31 on your favorite podcast platform and dive into the why behind the weird with me, Quinn Lovecraft. 31, the why behind the weird. I think that Stella is an interesting exposition, I guess, into what it means to carry certain things with you, but always feel like you can never be fully yourself. And I think in many ways, uh, Black people can understand that, right? That who you are to work, for example. So this is a joke that Maz and I always make about how, like, on the phone, our work, our work voices or our phone voices sound completely <laughs> different to how you sound to to right. whenever whoever you're talking to, right? But I also always think about how Stella was an exploration of kinship and family. So you. I think that for for black people, kinship and family means so much, right? That for many of us, it was almost inconceivable that you could just leave your family and up and go. But there's an exploration that you do there and and you challenge ideas of family and kinship, right? So you think of the relationship that Desiree and Jude have and you contrast that with the relationship that Stella and Kennedy have and so much of that is because of our ideas of kinship so how do, what does it mean to grow a family or to develop a family when you've had to sever ties with your own what does it mean to develop a healthy family when you have no access to your own and you have no access to tradition and to being able to pass down so many of the things that our, our grandparents teach us, that our mothers teach us, that that Stella is unable to do for Kennedy because that would mean a betrayal of this life that she's built for herself. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I think that that is, um, you know, one of the many sources of conflict in that relationship is that Stella paints her life as kind of this gap, it's just this absence. And it doesn't make sense to Kennedy because she's just like, you know, why have we never been to a family reunion? <laughs> like, why have we never been to like, why have I never met any one of your high school friends? Why have I, you know, there's that huge sort of gap that's been painted there. Um, and I think for Stella, I think there's a liberation in that gap. Like there's something, uh, I mean, I, I think what, you, what you're saying is true that the idea of the role of family uh, within black cultures, but I think also for her, there's something, uh, there's something really painful about a lot of her family memories, you know, the, the fact that she witnessed this really violent moment in her childhood of her father being killed. Uh, those are not, you know, the struggles that her mother went through and the fact that she was not able to go to college because they didn't have the money for it. And she has a lot of, uh, I think, intense emotional memories that are tied to her family and her home. Uh, so freeing her, herself of that in a way, I think is, is how she thinks of it, is that there is something liberating in that and being able to, kind of write a new story for yourself and, and, and sort of begin with that blank play page. But at the same time, um, there is that erasure of self. She can't tell stories about her childhood, really, because her sister is in all of them and her having to constantly self-edit and to constantly be on guard in that way. Um, so I think that it's something that she, she definitely struggles with this idea of creating this, this, family uh from this absence or from this gap uh and it's something that i think that that's one of the the strains that is that is placed on her relationship with her daughter and why to her daughter there's something that always feels off there's something that always feels very incomplete in how her mother moves through the world so i wanted to think about that of just how does stella create this this life of herself from from that from that past that she has erased in what way is starting over something that feels really liberating and framed to her? And in what other ways it's something that actually ends up haunting her even more? Mm-hmm. I, I, I also wanted to spend some time thinking about Desiree and locating her in themes of loss, abandonment, and also grief. Because I think a lot of Desiree's life is, is that. It's just like she has to leave in the middle of the night with her daughter and then return to this place where she could potentially be uh, pushed out. So there's this constant anxiety about not having a home, right? But then she has to take care of her mom, but at the same time also grieve the loss of this sister who she thinks is no longer here or might be or might not be, right? Um, 
and also grieving a life that she could have had in DC because she constantly thinks about, oh my gosh, DC would have been so different, but for this particular moment. And then there's this moment where like her, her, her mom starts losing her memory. Uh, and I think you do something really interesting with that because we know that Adele is someone who is losing her memory, but the one moment her and Early are walking back and Early's like, oh my gosh, is this white woman sitting on your porch? She's like, that ain't no white woman. That's my daughter. <laughs> and, and, and I wanted to know, like even in the myth of memory, but also in thinking about familial relationships, right? The idea that even in her loss of memory, Adele was able to recognize her daughter. So I suppose to, to think about like uh, Desiree's like, you know, grieving stage, but also to think about Adele's loss of memory, but this memory not extending or not extending to her missing daughter, so to say. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, I think as far as Desiree, it's true that she's someone who experiences a lot of loss in her life. Uh, but I think she's somebody that finds a way to always soldier on in a way that, uh, that is, I think, different than Stella. I think Stella's impulse is just to sort of flee. <laughs> she's got that fight or flight instinct and she's definitely flight and Desiree will, will stand and fight a little bit. So for me, thinking about Desiree was, you know, not only does she um, escape this abusive marriage and she returns to this hometown that she hates and always wanted to leave, but she also returns to this house where she saw her father killed in front of her. And she returns to the sort of exact site of trauma and lives out, you know, most of her adult life there. And that's a very different impulse than someone like Stella who wants to just sort of erase that this happened and, and create herself in a different way. So that was interesting to me about Desiree. Uh, and I think as far as Adele, part of that was just drawing on, um, you know, uh, part of it was drawing on uh, my, my mother's mother had Alzheimer's uh, and that was, I only met her once and it was while she uh, had Alzheimer's and I don't remember, I mean, it was, really young, I don't remember ever talking to her, ever really getting to know her because I met her at such a, um, a difficult point towards the end of her life. Um, but there was always something interesting to me about the nature of, of something like Alzheimer's, which is that a lot of times you do remember very specific things from early in your life, but you cannot remember things that just happened. Um, so there was something that I wanted to um, play with a little bit with that because of the fact that, you know, the idea of there being twins. I mean, that's something I have not even really researched, but um, thinking about whether patients with Alzheimer's, like how you would react to twins and how confusing that must be, I would imagine. Um, so I have that idea of there being, you know, one who is the caretaker and the idea for Desiree of Adele remembering Stella, but not quite remembering her. Um, that was something that I found really just sad to think about. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, the idea of, of Adele seeing Stella and immediately remembering her, but remembering her as she was and not as the woman that she's come to be. Um, and to me, it was kept thinking about what's going to happen when, once I realized that Stella was going to return to the town. Okay, well, what's going to happen? Is there going to be a huge fight? Like, what's, what's going to happen? And to me, the idea of, I don't know, there was something really sad and emotionally satisfying to me about the idea of returning to your home after this long time of being away and like this person not remembering why they should even be upset with you and not even having the impulse to be upset with you. Um, and what that would feel like for Stella, like the fact that to me, that's actually sadder than like, than someone like I got, I came back and you yelled at me. Like, I think Stella would have actually handled that better than the fact that her mother's in a place where she does not even think to be upset with her. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it allowed me to think about, a lot of that is all of those things sort of as far as the characters and how they're how they're moving through the world but also let me speak more i think more deeply just to these thematics of memory which i think are important throughout the book of family memory and, and what we inherit from family and what we forget and the fact that there can be liberation and pain and forgetting mm -hmm. I, I love that you've spoken about stella's return because i think one of the most poignant 
points in the book is when Stella is the is the exchange between Stella and Early, and I think it points to a theme that runs out throughout the book and the theme of abandonment, and yet we see that both of these characters reach a place of understanding about about abandonment in different ways, right? And you use that moment as a vehicle to point us to looking at abandonment as sometimes an act of love. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit about that, what it, may, what it meant for you to write about abandonment as a turning point in this book and to see it, to see the leaving, to see the loss as an act of love and an act of liberation. Yeah, I mean, I think that for, you know, early, much of Early's life, he resents his parents for leaving him with his aunt and uncle and thinks of them kind of dumping him uh, and uh, and only later does he get a more complicated understanding of their potential motives and the idea that, you know, maybe they just could not care for me and they did the best that they could and they knew that if they had said goodbye, I would not have let them leave and they could not have been able to do this thing for me that was ultimately the best that they could have done for me. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of see him go through that progression of understanding and come to some type of peace with this thing that had wounded him for most of his life. Um, and, and think about Stella also as, you know, I, I think to me, I think there was maybe, um, there can be, I think, an expectation for a story like this, that it's about getting the twins back together. Like that is the, where we want to land. Uh, but I just didn't want to do that. I felt that that didn't feel real to me and it didn't feel honest to me. And to me, these are, you know, again, two women who've lived the overwhelming majority of their lives apart. They have become so much of who they are apart from each other. So I wanted them to have a moment of, of, uh, of coming together. But I didn't, it didn't make sense to me that oh, Stella's going to move back to Mallard. Like, that never made sense to me. So, <laughs> um, so really thinking about that feeling of leaving and being left and how you come to, sense, have come to terms with it. Because I think that it's inevitable. Both of those things are inevitable in life. Either we leave or we're left. Uh, so how do we come to terms with that eventually? And how do we learn how to move on after it? Mm. I also think a lot about Kennedy. And I think about Kenny as like, I feel sorry for her in many respects. Because I'm like, you're supposed to have this perfect life. But even in this perfect life, you're like, something is missing. And I think it's like, in, in many ways, this inherent idea that we spoke about earlier about kinship, like a large part of Kennedy's life is like this need to be rooted in a family and like her mom is just not giving her that. And I, 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 I read the relationship between Kennedy and Jude as that, as that these people don't really maybe like each other, but they are always drawn to each other because in many ways, Kennedy's seeking this, this that she's lost, this gap that her mom cannot fill. And I wanted us to speak a little bit about that, right? About how the, Jude and Kennedy's relationship is sort of like nice, maybe, but it's really not nice because in many ways, Jude is searching for something, uh, access to Stella, and Kennedy is searching for access to her family history. And the relationship is like tenuous in that respect, is that these people are not necessarily friends in the real sense of the word, but they're like bridging gaps for each other. Yeah, I mean, I think somebody described them once to me as antagonistic cousins. And I think that that's the most accurate way of describing their relationship. Um, I knew writing it, I, I didn't, again, didn't feel real or honest to me that, oh, they become best friends. <laughs> like, that never felt real to me. Um, and I think part of it is, like, thinking, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I have a very, I don't know. I don't think I have a very romanticized view of family just in general, <laughs> but it's, it's always interesting to think of your cousins and think, well, if I had met them when we were like 20, would we be friends or are we close because we grew up at grandma's house having, you know, having dinner together or whatever. We grew up together. Um, and you can say the same thing about a sibling too. If I met my sister and we're both 20, are we going to get along? Or is it because we shared all of these experiences growing up? Um, and, you know, the truth can be anywhere sort of in that spectrum of, of responses. But I think for, for Jude and Kennedy, it's, you know, these, these girls have grown up under such completely different circumstances, but also with completely different uh, levels of access to information. Um, you know, I think on the, from the material side, obviously Kennedy is the one who has, you know, all of the material things that she could ever have wanted in her life versus Jude who arrives to LA with a single suitcase. 
Um, mm. But when it comes to actual knowledge and information, Jude has so much more and Kennedy's the impoverished one. Kennedy doesn't even know basic facts about her own mother's life, let alone anything about this family history and where the family is from. And Jude has access to all of that and I think takes it for granted until she meets Kennedy. Um, so I, I liked that interplay between the two of them, this sort of, uh, you know, inexplicable drawing towards each other, even though they know that they don't quite like each other, that they don't really get along, that they don't really have anything in common. But the fact that they're drawn towards each other in spite of that, um, the fact that they're both looking for something that the other has, uh, and they don't quite know what the other one is looking for <laughs> and what they want. Um, so there was fun, something fun, I think, about that dynamic and just to think about what it would be like to get these two people in this room together. Um, and I think a lot of ways having them interact um, took some pressure off of having the twins interact because they're sort of interacting through their children. Um, and it gave you a way to kind of see the, the women that the twins have grown into be, um, the ways in which they have shaped their daughters and their daughters going out into the world and then forging this very unlikely and sort of tenuous friendship. Mm -hmm. I mean, speaking of interesting relationships, I think the relationship between Blake and Stella is an interesting one. I mean, in many ways, Blake looks like any of the men who could have inf who inflicted the violence on on um, Stella's father, right? But she also then marries this man, and there's love there. But I wonder what it must be like to love somebody, but also feel that you have to keep so many of the most important, precious parts of yourself to yourself because this person could just never know that so they may not ever be able to love you in the totality of who you are and then to also have an additional layer of the generational trauma of what it means to love somebody who looks like the kind of person who in another lifetime may have inflicted a casual casually inflicted violence upon you and i think that those are two very interesting themes in blake and stella's relationship yeah, I mean, I think uh, I wanted to think about what that relationship would look like. Um, and I wanted there to be, you know, I wanted you to get a sense of the courtship and, and why Stella would have been uh, like wooed by this person. Uh, you know, I think it's easy again to be on the outside and think, well, if I had seen that happen to my dad, there's no way I could have married, you know, whatever. <laughs> but really thinking about what it meant for her as this girl who, you know, kind of came from nowhere and had nothing and to have a man like Blake be interested in her um, and to treat her in this way and her just realize like what it means to have that sort of cover and protection of whiteness and particularly sort of white maleness, how that changes your life as a woman um, to have, you know, to have that sort of uh, the kind of protections of white patriarchy um, and the way in which that changes your life in a meaningful way as a woman um, who one day you were, you know, working for this person and, you know, bringing him coffee or whatever, and now you're living in this huge house. So, um, so I think part of that was, 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 you know, thinking about the complexity of that relationship and what it means to draw nearest to that, which you are most, that you most fear. Um, you know, I think that there's, again, there's something kind of inherent to heterosexuality in that way of, of knowing as a woman that, that, you know, that men pose uh, a sort of material and physical threat to you in a lot of different ways, but still being attracted to them, right? Um, so I think we're taking race out of it. I think there's something sort of uh, kind of inherent to that type, type of dynamic between men and women. Um, but for her, it's really exacerbated because, yeah, she's had this direct experience of witnessing um, violence um, by white men and then finds herself marrying this white man. So to me, there's always something really inherently complex about it and, uh, and difficult to think of how she navigates this relationship. Um, but I think that that was also something that I, that I enjoyed exploring. Of what does it mean to, to marry this person who reminds you of, of what you were maybe most afraid of? Mm. I mean, thank you really so much for writing The Vanishing Half because I think like it allows us to, to do many things, right? And I think it's a really fantastic, fantastic book. I wondered if you can just read to our listeners just perhaps the first page of The Vanishing Half so that we, you know, they can, we can just titillate their, their listening buds into this fantastic book. Sure. So this is just the opening section. 
The morning one of the lost twins returned to Mallard, Lou LeBon ran to the diner to break the news. And even now, many years later, everyone remembers the shock of sweaty Lou pushing through the glass doors, chest heaving, neckline darkened with his own effort. The barely awake customers clamored around him, 10 or so, although more would lie and say that they'd been there too, if only to pretend that this once they'd witnessed something truly exciting. In that little farm town, nothing surprising ever happened. Not since the Vignes twins had disappeared. But that morning in April 1968, on his way to work, Lou spotted Desiree Vignes walking along the Partridge Road, carrying a small leather suitcase. She looked exactly the same as when she'd left at 16, still white, her skin the color of sand barely wet, her hipless body reminding him of a branch caught in a strong breeze. She was hurrying, her head bent, and Lou paused here, a bit of a showman. She was holding the hand of a girl, seven or eight, and black as tar. Blue-black, he said, like she'd flown to Africa. Lou's egg house splintered into a dozen different conversations. The line cook wondered if it had been Desiree after all, since Lou was turning 60 in May, still too vain to wear his eyeglasses. The waitress said it had to be. Even a blind man could spot a Vignes girl, and it certainly should, couldn't have been that other one. The diner is abandoning grits and eggs on the counter, didn't care about the Vignes foolishness, who on earth was that dark child? Could she possibly be Desiree's? Hmm. I'll stop Thank you so much. Sure. I think that this has been a really wonderful conversation. As listeners, we encourage you to really go out and get The Vanishing Half. Um, not only because this has been a fantastic conversation, but I think that you'll find gems uh, in the book that has to do with the writing because Bert's writing is just so fantastic. Um, that there are moments I still return to some sections of the book because I'm like, oh my gosh, hold up, who writes about grief this way, right? <laughs> um, so uh, honestly, Cheeky Natives, uh, we encourage you to go out and get this book. And we're super excited about the adaptation of the book. We can't wait to see this in picture. Um, yeah. And we wanted to know what, I know <laughs> this book has only been published right now, but is there anything that you're working on next? Is there something that we can look forward to? Uh, yeah, I'm working on the third novel. So it's still really early and I have no idea when it's going to be done. <laughs> so I can't, I cannot uh, give any type of timeline right now, but I'm, I'm working on third books about music and I'm having a lot of fun writing it. I always love to um, ask authors what they're reading and I want to know what you're, what you're reading. I was super excited for your third novel. And we can't wait for that. I know it's going to be amazing. But I'd love to know what you're reading at the moment. What's on your... Thank you. Um, yeah, I just started Black Bottom Saints by Alice Randall, uh, which is also a book about music. Uh, so I just started that one. I cannot speak to it yet. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, I, and I finished this book called Feast Your Eyes by Milo Goldberg, which is about photography. I just finished that one. So doing a lot of different reading about arts um, as I'm trying to think about how to write about art in a, in a way that I never have before but it's been really fun. Sounds awesome. It's on our list and I, I know that the Cheeky Nators will also be looking out for it. Um, yeah but once again just to really say thank you and to honor you for the amazing work that you've done. Um, it's, it's been amazing to just watch the kind of reception that not only the mothers but also the vanishing half has received and I think it's such a beautiful time for, for work by, by black writers, by black women. We're so excited to see what the future holds and we cannot wait to watch the vanishing half when it is on, um, when it's finally available. But just once again to congratulate you on your long listing but also just congratulate you on all the things that we know are coming your way just in terms of um this is us speaking into being but thank you once again for being so gracious with your time and thank you for just writing what is not only such a timely novel but what is also going to be such a timeless timeless book as well and we look forward to seeing what the future holds for you thank you i appreciate that thank you for having me on